1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You can follow along. This is God's word. My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, we'll leave the reading of God's word there for a few moments. Uh, This is now the second part of our series called Behold What Love. And we've been going through, we're going through this letter. And as I said last week, <clears throat> the letter of 1 John or 1 John can be understood as an exploration in the Christian concept of love. What does it mean when Christians talk of love? And so John perfectly explains that. We saw last week how love is expressed in terms of gospel fellowship based on the witness of John the Apostle and the other apostles to Jesus and what he said and what he did, believing in that is enough for us to have fellowship, sufficient for us to have fellowship with God and with one another. And so as we saw last week, our understanding of love is hugely significant in how we understand ourselves as a a church and the kind of relationships that we should have here at Foundation Church and elsewhere. And so what we're gonna see uh, this evening is two uh, main sort of streams or rivers, if you like, of truth, where where John is is sort of taking what we learned last week and and, and developing it. And this is what he does through the letter. Um, It's like, you know, the old old, uh, uh, illustration of holding up a a diamond with loads of facets and, and, and you hold it up and it's the same diamond, but every time you move it around, you see something slightly different, a different element, a different way it catches the light. 
And so in some ways, that's what John is doing here um, when we are understanding love. And so we see these two streams of truth, two rivers of truth, uh, coming throughout this passage that we've just understood. The first uh, stream or river, if you like, is a declaration of gospel truth. And the second river that we see is a demonstration of gospel living. So a declaration of gospel truth and a demonstration of gospel living. Declaring, demonstrating. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, in verse 1 of our passage today, John speaks to his friends, the, the churches, the people in the churches, and he calls them little children. So what John is not doing here is addressing just the little children who come to the front for the children's talk. He's addressing the entire congregation. And that's his term, and he uses that several times during the letter. <coughs> for his friends, he considers himself a father in the faith. Most likely when John wrote this letter, he was very old, um, possibly just a, a year or two from death, probably in his 80s or even in his 90s. Very old man, yet with a deep bond, a deep relationship with these churches. So he calls them little children. <coughs> and he says, I'm writing <coughs> this stuff to you so that you do not sin. But, he goes on to say, if anyone does sin, I've got the answer for you. See, John is realistic. He, he knows that genuine and sincere believers will and do sin. And he writes to assure them, to, to calm the stormy conscience, to give them comfort. He writes as someone with a pastor's heart for his people. And he says this, if you are a believer in Jesus and you do sin, he says, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, in verse 1. An advocate, if you're not familiar with that term, is somebody who speaks on behalf of someone else, who speaks on their behalf and says favourable things of them to someone else. <coughs> An advocate is someone who appeals for mercy. And so, if you find yourself in sin, says John, now, currently, Jesus Christ, he says to his people, Jesus Christ is your advocate. He is speaking on your behalf, before God the Father. He is speaking favourable things about you to his Father. And his character, Jesus' character, is underscored here. He is Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, <coughs> the righteous. That means he is someone who is just, he is fair, he is equitable. But how is this good? Because if you and I and the people that John is writing to are believers in Jesus, and yet we have sinned. We have Jesus, who is our advocate, who is fair, and is only speaking the truth. How is this good news? Because we need mercy. We don't necessarily need justice or want justice. Because we've sinned, we, we are in the wrong. We need someone to speak favorably and plead for justice, for, sorry, for mercy for us, <coughs> not justice. If we get what we deserve, we are all in trouble. But John doesn't leave it there. He continues in verse 2. He says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And this is a pretty cool word that you don't hear about anywhere else. It's not a natural word that you use in everyday conversation. But he says Jesus <coughs> is our propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It's referring to sacrifice. 
to atoning sacrifice. And if anything, it's getting to the very heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a theme that is very dear to John, and you might be glad to hear that we'll, we'll be referring to it as we go through the letter to understand better what propitiation means. But it is good news, because it's all about, propitiation is all about making peace through offering a sacrifice. And as we thought about last week, Old Testament religion um, involved the killing of animals as a substitute for sinners, and their blood was offered to settle the score between them and God. And when the animal was killed and the blood was, was spilled, <coughs> the person who gave the sacrifice, their guilt was removed, and the wrath of God, his anger against sin, was put aside. And so John is saying that that's what Jesus did when he gave himself on the cross. And so let's take these two things together and hopefully we'll, we'll understand why this is so good, so powerful. Jesus is our advocate, but he's also our propitiation. He's speaking on our behalf. He's pleading for mercy. But this is good and assuring and comforting because he's also our sacrifice. He's also our propitiation. Jesus is saying <coughs> of every believer right now to his father, forgive his sin, forgive her sin. He's saying to his father of you, remove your wrath, remove your guilt, their guilt. I, I've given myself for him and for her and for them. And so for Jesus, being an advocate for us isn't just a hopeful punt. It's based on his own sacrifice that he gave on the cross. That sin that you did has been settled. That failure in your past has been forgiven. That mess up has been washed away. That guilt that you have has been cleansed. And this, says John, is true for every believer in Jesus. And it is available for anyone who doesn't yet believe. That's why he goes on to say, not only for our sins, that is the church, you know, those who already believe, but also for the sins of the whole world. John's not saying that everybody is going to be saved no matter how they respond to Jesus. <coughs> but he's saying that this applies to those outside the fellowship as well. The, they can still come in. They can still come home and receive this cleansing, this propitiation. So Jesus is our advocate and he's our propitiation. This is John declaring those gospel truths in this great river. But he's not done yet. Look down at verses 12 to 14. He's not content to lay out theological truths for the church. He, he pushes them deeper into their hearts. And in verses 12 to 14, he sort of addresses the church in this poetic form. I don't know if it's come out on your sheets, but when you look at it um, in, in, in printed Bibles, <coughs> you'll see it laid out to show that it's like a poem. And he directs all of this to the entire congregation. Remember, little children isn't small children, it's everybody. That's how he speaks of them. By the way, don't be put off by the masculine language, fathers and young men. This applies to everyone in the church. John's just simply, as we'll see in a minute, uh, directing various truths to those who are mature in their faith and maybe those who are younger in their faith. Anyway, what's he saying? He is saying, <coughs> the point I'm writing to you is so that you know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
for older people, for those who are more mature in the faith, if you like. I'm writing to you so that because you know him from the beginning, you know Jesus. Your faith is real. Your fellowship is true. Your relationship is a, is a fact. I'm writing to you, younger people, because you've overcome the evil one, he says. Again, he sort of repeats this again. I'm writing to you because you know the Father. You know him from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you're strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. It lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John is saying, behold, what love. And he's saying all this belongs to you when you believe in Jesus. This is true of you. Look at what is happening, he says. Look at what it means to have Jesus Christ as your advocate and as your propitiation. You are strong because of Jesus. You have overcome the evil one because of Jesus. You know God because of Jesus. What does that do, folks, when you, when you hear that? And you realise that these truths are being pounded down, not just for the readers of the letter, but to you as well. What does that do in your heart? Does it skip a beat? So the first stream that we see throughout this passage is John declaring gospel truths to the people. And they are our truths as well. But the second thing he does, the second river of truth, declaring gospel truth. Number two, demonstration of gospel living. Jesus is our advocate, he's our propitiation, he sets us free. Because of him we're in fellowship with God, but as John is at pains to show clearly throughout the whole letter, your response to Jesus, <coughs> your faith in him, your fellowship with God has a direct and unmistakable claim on how you live your life. Because if you know God truly and really, it changes your entire outlook. And we saw this familiar sort of theme last week. <coughs> and so again, he's developing it and reinforcing it. It's not about what you know. It's about how you live it out. So the question he seems to pose to the people reading his letter is how do you know that you know? How do you know that you know God? How can you be assured that you actually know Jesus in this most intimate and life-changing way that John lays out? How can you prove it to yourself that you actually know that this stuff makes a difference to you? Well, he says in verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That is how you and I know that we know God, as if we look at ourselves and find out if we're keeping his commandments. He continues in verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. That's how we know that we're in him. In verse 6, if we know that we're in him, we walk in the same way as he, that is Jesus, walked. These are all different emphases, but they add up to the same thing. If you know Jesus, you evidence this by living out God's commandments. Put another way, it is impossible to know God truly and not live for him and obey his commandments. In fact, in verse 4, people who try and do that, who say they're believers and yet don't <coughs> obey Jesus with their lives, are called liars. 
The truth is not in him or her who says that. But John is saying to the church, you know him. You live for him according to his word. And you live the same way that Jesus walked. In reality, he says, this is nothing new. In verse 7, I'm I'm writing to you an old command. You've heard this before. This is not news to you people. John is not explicit here in this section what the actual command is that he's referring to. But later on in the letter, he makes it clear. The command is this. (coughs) Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. If you're doing that, then you show that you know God the Father. But in another sense, he shows... This is not an old commandment. This is a new commandment, or is an element of newness about it. Why is that? Well, in verse 8, he says, because the world, so the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The darkness is the unbelieving world. It is the world in rebellion. And John is saying the world, the darkness, has a, has a use-by date. It won't be around forever, he says, and so I'm giving you a new com- an old commandment, which is love one another. But there is an element of newness about it. Because the world is passing away, you need to love one another in a way that they can see. Because the day is coming when all that will draw to an end. And so this puts a finer point on this command to love one another, to demonstrate to the world the love that God has for us and that we have for God by the way that we treat one another. (coughs) And this brings us to a very practical point, doesn't it? Our relationships, according to this. Our gospel fellowship, according to this. This church community is to have a great impact on the surrounding world as each day passes. It's an old commandment, love one another. But there is a newness about it. There is an urgency that's attached to it. the way that we demonstrate that love, the way that we actually love one another, preaches to unbelievers. And it shows how clearly and obviously we love one another and love God. Demonstration of gospel living has a cutting edge. It's an announcement to the world. It is light in the darkness and we're not going to have a lot of time to go through it very much but in verses 15 to 17 (coughs) our love for God and for one another is is radically different from the values of the world it shows us there that the world values desires of the flesh desires of the eyes and pride in possessions that is stuff that we want to satisfy us in our bodies stuff that we look at and desire stuff that we accumulate All that's from the world, says John. But that's not how we live. For those of us who know God and love God, that's not how we live. That stuff doesn't drive us like it drives the world. No, no, no. We live by loving one another. And you can start to see, can't you, how Christian gospel fellowship and community is so radically different from what the world has. (coughs) And it's up to us to live that in such a way that shines light into the darkness. Not by the way that we try and force it or script it or broadcast it in some way like other people perhaps sometimes do. That makes our love inauthentic, 
and unnatural when we start Instagramming it. But our love for one another is to be honest and observable and genuine. And when it is, that will carry light into the darkness. Let me ask you at this point, how are we as a church doing at loving one another? I, I, I sometimes say to people that now is the time for us to learn this stuff when we are relatively small. It's like our church has the training wheels, you know, the balance wheels on it. We're just learning the ropes. We're learning how to love one another and love God together. And how are we doing in that? If we get it right now, then we build on that. If we get it wrong now, the future is not bright. So we have these two great rivers that John's talking about. Declaration of gospel truth and the demonstration of gospel living. And the point that John is getting at here, and I hope you're starting to maybe guess yourself, the point is that in the believer, the true believer in Jesus, these two rivers converge. They come together in the believer. Marion and I recently had the opportunity to go and visit Niagara Falls in Canada. And it's an incredibly remarkable place if you've ever seen it on TV or even been there yourself. And the reason it is remarkable and amazing is not because of the height of the falls, because you can go to higher ones a couple of hours down the road. But it is just the, the, the shape of the Niagara Falls is like going into a big basin or a big bowl. It's almost like being surrounded in a sort of 360 degree, not quite 360, 270 degree waterfall. And as you enter into it, after you've boarded the boat and you've put on your your plastic ponchos, in you go. (coughs) And you start bit by bit to see the, the breathtaking power of the Niagara Falls. And as you're on the boat, it takes you right, as it feels, it feels like anyway, it takes you right to the center of this big basin. And as you approach, you feel the drag of air as the, the waterfall creates a vacuum and starts to almost suck you in. And the noise starts to grow from a, from a, a faint noise to a, a roar, to you, you have to shout at one another to hear each other. Torrential water comes, almost like the sun disappears. You're almost feeling like you're in the middle of this thing. And it is remarkable and it is powerful. But the reason why it is remarkable is that it is not one waterfall, but it's actually five waterfalls that converge in this natural bowl. One waterfall might be quite nice, but it will be weak. But when they converge, there is devastating power. And what the Apostle John is saying here is that when we declare gospel truths and when we demonstrate gospel living and they converge in the life of a believer, that results in great power and awe and energy. And by the way, that's normal for every believer, according to John. But before we go off and get excited, let me give you a few warnings. Because you see, there's a danger of overemphasizing one river over the other. We can either emphasize gospel truth as a church or as as Christians, or we can emphasize gospel living over the other. (coughs) Worse still, we can even completely neglect one in favor for the other. And what we end up doing is producing highly imbalanced Christians, greatly weakened 
Christians. See, we can overemphasize the gospel truth to the extent that we downplay gospel living. And what we end up doing is producing Christians who claim to be Christian, but yet there's little verifiable evidence in their lives that they are walking as Jesus walked. Instead, we create Christians who live ungodly lives that are at odds with God's ways for his people. The famous Indian civil rights leader and lawyer, Mahatma Gandhi, famously said of Christians, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And others too outside the faith in our own day may say that of us if we're overemphasizing one river over another. They may not reject Jesus on the basis of the claims that they've read in the Bible, but they might reject Jesus on the basis that they don't see any evidence of that gospel living in us, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we behave at work. We can emphasize, overemphasize the gospel truths. But we can also overemphasize the gospel living. That is the expectations and requirements of someone who claims to be a Christian. We can, <coughs> if we're not careful as a church and as Christians, we can tip over into legalism. That is, we're more concerned with external conformity and living certain lives. We're more worried about that than we are about the inner heart condition. And so what we'll end up doing, if that's the case, is producing Christians that are proud because they think they're doing well. Or we produce Christians that are disappointed and crushed and anxious because they can never live up to those standards. But as we can see here, and even the way that John organises his material, it is both and. It is truth and life. It is a declaration of gospel truth and it is a demonstration of gospel living both together in the believer. And when a believer knows God and embraces these gospel truths, their hearts sing when they hear the gospel. It's awesome to behold when these two rivers converge in every believer. Power to display the gospel in every area of life. Power to honour and glorify God. <coughs> Power to really and truly overcome resistant and besetting sins and trials and temptations. Power to become more like Jesus with every passing day. Practically speaking, the one in whom these two great rivers converge is able to demonstrate countercultural love of the brothers and sisters within the community of faith. See, gospel living isn't just the avoidance of sin. It is love for God. And a heart that's set on fire by the declaration of gospel truth and the realisation that they are for me is a heart that desires to walk in the way that Jesus does so that we may please him and honour him and love one another. Before we come to a conclusion, really, in this sermon, I just want to address <coughs> what might be a nagging question that you have in, in your mind. It might not be a question at all until I ask it. Uh, but anyway, we'll see. 
One question that may come up in your mind, and particularly if you're here last week and this week too, is this. John said last week, it's impossible to know God and walk in the darkness. You can't know God and sin. But this week, John is saying, if we do sin, there's an action plan, there's, there's, a, there's a way out. So the question that might come up in your mind is this. How do we know sin from sin? In other words, <clears throat> how do we know the difference between walking in darkness, someone who's self-deceived, and someone who's a real believer and yet sins and maybe continually sins and can't seem to do very much about it? More personally, how do I, how do you know that you're not walking in darkness as opposed to someone who truly believes and yet sins? Because according to John, both types of people exist in the same church. He's writing a letter to a church, by the way, not to those outside the church. So how do we know sin from sin? How can you tell? Well, the answer can be found in the text it's all about your direction of travel. He doesn't use those words, that's my paraphrase. How you tell sin from sin is all about the direction of travel. Are you becoming more like Jesus over time or less like Jesus over time? Or in other words, are there recurrent sin patterns in your life that you're unconcerned about? Or is sin for you something that you regret, that you grieve over, and you take steps to try and remove? See, being a believer who truly knows God is like someone who goes into the gym for the first time. You may not be able to tell, but I started attending a personal trainer about two years ago. And my first session, <coughs> it's a very painful memory for me, actually, literally, um, it should have been 45 minutes long. Uh, but for about 25 minutes of that 45-minute session, I spent on the mat on the floor, trying not to vomit. I couldn't rise from the floor because the 20 minutes of exercise I'd apparently done had brought me near to the end of my life, closer than I thought. It was an ugly scene. I was almost crying if I had enough moisture to be able to cry. I just had to sort of whimper on one side. Bad times. But the next session, the following week, was still painful, but not just as bad. Could do a little bit more. Not quite so out of puff, still bad. And then the week after that, a little better. And see, as the time goes on, <coughs> I was able to cope a lot better. My capacity increased, strength increased, still exhausting work. But I was becoming fitter and stronger. And maybe you can relate to that if you've been to the gym yourself. So too, the believer. If you truly know God, then your life <coughs> will trend towards fitness and vigor and strength. If you don't know God and you've deceived yourself or you've made some false claim in the past about God and yet you're not living out gospel demonstration of life, then you're like someone who goes to the gym as a New Year's resolution and decides it's not for them after one try and yet keeps their membership going. 
So how do you tell the difference between a believer who sins and an unbeliever who is self-deceived? The answer is what direction of travel are you going in? Is there progress? No matter how fast or slow, and don't be comparing to other people because we all move at different rates. But when you look at your life, are you moving towards faith and likeness of Jesus? Honouring him more, obeying him more? Or are you moving in the opposite direction? So let's bring all these threads together. We've got the declaration of gospel truths. Jesus is your advocate and he's your propitiation. And the, declar- and the demonstration of gospel living. So let me ask as we come to a close, <coughs> is there evidence that these two things have converged in your life? as you demonstrate gospel living. Even if it's just in a seed form, tiny. Or if it's more obvious because you've been walking with God for many seasons of life. Is there evidence that these rivers have converged in your life? You know, sometimes this question is more, the answer rather, is more obvious to other people than it is to you. So maybe it's worth asking those who you know and love, a trusted Christian friend, Be honest with me, do I give evidence of gospel living? What evidence of gospel living do you see in my life? And if you see the evidence of gospel living, I'm not talking about perfection, evidence of gospel living, as John would have us believe, love for brothers. If you see evidence of that, if others see evidence of that, let your heart be assured that you have fellowship with God and that Christ is your advocate. And so if that is you, keep going, keep training, keep pushing on, keep leaning in, keep being light in the darkness. But what if you conclude on reflection that the evidence that you are living gospel life is absent? By the way, first I would say, if you are a believer, you think yourself to be a believer in Jesus, and you can't see any evidence in your own life, (coughs) please ask a fellow believer, a trusted friend again, do you see evidence of Christian living in my life? Do you see evidence of love for the brothers and sisters? Let's say you've done that and there is no evidence, and you conclude that you're not a believer in Jesus, what do you do? Well, the good news is that for you, And for us, the game is not over. We saw last week, those of you who were with us, that John gives uh, points to a gift that God gives to the church called confession. And confession is simply being honest before God. It's simply saying, God, I've looked and there's no power in my life. These two rivers haven't converged. I haven't been walking in a way that God wants. I've been sinning and I'm comfortable with it or I've grown comfortable with it. If that's you and you confess your sins, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you, to bring you to know Jesus, to trust him. Say to Jesus, be for me my propitiation. Be my advocate. And in so doing, receive this great gospel truth that John is talking about. Let it set your heart on fire. 
As we close out just now, we're going to have a few moments of silent reflection <coughs> for you to respond yourself personally and, and silently uh, to any area that has maybe come up in going through this Bible text together. We're going to ask in a few moments uh, for the Holy Spirit to, to work and to illuminate, open, shine light on our minds and our lives. So a few moments of silent reflection and then We'll pray together as we close out. Father, we confess that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory. We deserve your just wrath. And yet because of Jesus, who is our advocate and our propitiation, we can know you and know that we know you and know your Son and have fellowship with you and with one another. And so we pray that you would inflame our hearts with love for you. May the two rivers of truth and life Converge in each of us, in our church. Would you empower us to live authentic lives as we love one another freely? And may this continue to shape us and challenge us every day in our decisions about money and relationships and work and home. In the name of Jesus, who stands before you just now, Amen.